Okay, we'll continue in our Advent series today in Luke, looking at the narrative surrounding Mary. Uh, we'll be at Luke 39, uh, 139 rather, uh, through 45. Let's pray. Oh Lord, your words are pure words. There's no corruption in them. Uh, there's no dross in them. They're like silver refined in a furnace, purified seven times. The words of the world, and even we must confess, our own words are impure. Even our best words are mixed with, with impurities. And, O oh Lord, teach us where to place our trust. Not in the flattering lips of, of uh, double-minded hearts, but in the pure riches of your word. For in you there is no darkness. May we not only hear and know here this morning, but may we utterly be convinced in, in head and heart and therefore lean on your promises and obey your commandments. And may our affections be stirred that we might both glorify and enjoy you, our God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Luke chapter 1, 39 through 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. At this point in history, the people of God had long been running a marathon of faith, uh, waiting year upon year for the arrival of the Messiah. They were at this point quite late in the race, having hit the proverbial wall. Uh, they had endured at this point 400 years of silence of the Lord's word to them. Uh, and the question is, will they be able to finish the race? Will they be able to slog on to the end? Will, will the finish line come into view? When will the Messiah come? And after 400 years, uh, they, they've rounded that bend and, and the finish line is in sight. And, and runners, despite the exhaustion of, of 26.1 miles, uh, the last 1.9 miles are still a mad dash to the finish line, a sprint. The crowd is cheering. The racers who are neck and neck uh, flail their arms and reach for the finish line. The aura of excitement is stirred by the prospect of, of the finish and fresh, fresh uh, vigor propels the racers to the end. And for Mary and Elizabeth and soon the rest of Israel, uh, the finish line is in view. The Messiah is almost here. The passage before us should be viewed, I think, not as an isolated event, but as the culmination of that, that whole marathon of faith that has come before. 
And so I have identified six themes or threads or paths that run parallel through the scriptures, and they're all converging at this point in history. Um, So we'll look at the text a little bit more thematically today. So the first theme is blessedness. Blessedness. Uh, So Gabriel visits Mary. He tells her about Elizabeth, and he says she makes haste to visit Elizabeth. She travels to their house in Judah. When she arrives uh, and greets Mary or greets Elizabeth, the baby John leaps in Elizabeth's womb. The text says that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and she cries with a loud voice. And what does she announce? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, she announces. She announces blessings three times. Three uh, beatitudes. First to Mary in 42, blessed are you among women. And then of Jesus, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And again of Mary in 45, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Perhaps we're most familiar with this word blessed from uh, the Sermon on the Mount. What we call the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. I think as a kid, I thought Beatitudes meant be like these attitudes. Um, the, the word Beatitude it comes from the Latin Beatus, which means blessed. Um, so it, bless, blessing is a theme that, that reaches, of course, much farther back than, than the Sermon on the Mount or this text. But it's a theme that runs through the Bible. There's many Beatitudes in the Old Testament and perhaps we're very familiar with Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Um, or we might think of, of Abraham, who God blessed and who would in turn be a blessing to the nations. What does this mean? What does blessed mean? And I think for me, more than any other prayer, maybe it's just because I don't know how to pray, but the thing that I pray most is bless. This bless the food, bless our sleep, bless our family, bless our church. But what does that mean? Uh, some translations translate the word happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. But that seems a little bit lacking to me, um, especially in this text. Happy are you, Mary, and happy is the fruit of your womb. It's just a little lackluster. Instead, blessedness speaks of uh, divine favor or divine approval. Often it's the covenantal favor of the Lord on his people. Number six, uh, blessedness is connected with divine favor or the face of God shining on his people. Uh, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So Elizabeth, empowered by the Spirit, pronounces Mary blessed together with her son, uh, a, a recipient of divine favor and approval. You see here, Abraham's seed of blessing is germinating. 
We should not forget, as we consider these themes, they do not terminate in the New Testament. Our story uh, is not part of the Bible, like our story, but it is a part of redemptive history. And these, these themes continue to run through into redemptive history for us. We should be asking ourselves, uh, blessedness, favor, approval from God, that, that sounds pretty good. How can I have some of that, and particularly as a sinner? And in short, the only way we can obtain true blessing is, of course, through this son of Mary, the Blessed One. Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians 1.6 when he says, We have been blessed in the Beloved, who is Christ. And of course, if you read the whole chapter of Ephesians 1, the whole chapter is about all of the blessings that we have that come through him. So then we should rejoice at the announcement of Elizabeth, for if you are in Christ, you are blessed as well in him. Second theme that intersects in this passage is that of the the forerunner. The forerunner, the Old Testament speaks of one who would come and prepare the way of the Messiah. Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And in John 1, 23, it says, he said, I, and I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. This is John speaking, as the prophet Isaiah said, then Malachi Four, five, and six. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the prophecy of the one who is to come, Elijah the prophet, who is to come. Now, after Malachi, after 400 years of silence and thousands of years of building anticipation, here are two very otherwise ordinary women in an ordinary house in an unknown town in Judea. Pregnant uh, under not-so-ordinary circumstances. Carrying one the forerunner and the other the Messiah. That the silence is no more. And John, of course, was called to level the ground and point people to the Christ. Uh, Gabriel promised to Zechariah in chapter 1, Luke 1, 15 through 17, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John is the forerunner, the one who's coming to level the ground for the Messiah. And John does not delay. He begins his ministry in utero. Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. At least we think it's just normal quickening. She says again in verse 45 explicitly that this is a reaction to the greeting of the woman who is carrying the Lord, and it is a reaction of joy, she says. 
It is though, it's as though John wants to cry out already, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the world's sin. And we might become curious how a six-month-old uh, child in the womb can possibly react and delight to the presence of Jesus and Mary. And in short, we must conclude that this is not a natural event, but a supernatural event. Which are, uh, draws our attention to the third intersecting theme, which is that of the end-time spirit, or the eschatological spirit. This is a theme we see over and over again in Acts as we've been going through Acts. It's one that's very important to the theology of Luke. And ordinary Jewish women would have been aware uh, that the end times, the age of fulfillment, would be marked by the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36 26 and 27, I will give you a new heart. This is about the new covenant. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and and Jeremiah 31 is very similar language it doesn't expressly speak about the spirit but it's the same kind of language both suggesting that, that the universal work of the Holy Spirit would be in all believers in the new covenant that the the new covenant would be the age of the arrival of the Holy Spirit So the Spirit is not a force. He's not a sort of vague, mystical influence. The Spirit is a person. And he's a player who features prominently in Luke's historical accounts. For him, for Luke, this is momentous. The end-time Spirit is blowing over the people of God once again. And a new era of God's redemptive plan is beginning. Back in chapter 1, verse 15, Gabriel says of John the Baptist, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And now we read Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And this expression, filled with the Holy Spirit, is uh, important. As Reformed believers, in contrast to some Pentecostal groups and other theological camps, we don't believe in a second blessing theology where we're saved, but we must wait for a later move of the Spirit to to achieve a higher plane or higher uh, degree of Christian experience. But rather, in the New Covenant, we all share in the fulfillment of Moses' desire that all people would have the Holy Spirit. And yet, there does seem to be a sense in which this language of being filled with the Spirit does correspond to distinct actions of the Spirit by which He enables us for particular acts, not of revelation, but of of service. Or in in the case of Scripture, also of revelation. Um, Sinclair Ferguson's helpful here. He says, Luke acts speaks of being filled or uh, being full of the Spirit as an ongoing condition, but also describes particular occasions when individuals appear to experience distinct fillings. In the case of the former, the, it's a Greek word, the pleiro family of ru- words, 
is used, and in the latter, the verb plimpeme uh, is employed. So two different words, one for ongoing normal uh, activity of the Spirit in every Christian, and then the other category for uh, unique fillings of the Holy Spirit. So he says, in the former sense, to be filled with the Spirit prefers Uh, refers predominantly to exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in a life that is under the lordship of the Spirit. But the latter occasions refer to a special influx of ability and power in the service of the kingdom. And this latter sense is the one that's being applied to Elizabeth. And not only to Elizabeth, but also to John. As I mentioned, his leaping in the womb is a spiritual uh, activity. Calvin says it is natural that sudden joy on the part of a pregnant woman should cause a motion of the child in her womb, but Luke intended to express the extraordinary occurrence. No good purpose would be served by involving ourselves in intricate questions. If the child was aware of the presence of Christ or felt an emotion of piety, it is enough for us that the babe started by a secret movement of the spirit. So like the warm winds that precede a low-pressure system, now the Spirit is blowing again across Israel in a special way preceding the arrival of the Messiah. We should be reminded here then that no great move of God ever unfolds without the work of the person of the Holy Spirit. We're not looking for a a proliferation of the sign gifts in our day, nor are we looking for kind of the next new thing that the Spirit is doing. But we should be careful not to mistake the, the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit with the uniformity of His work in every time and place. The Spirit is not a, a medication that we're all given a dose of. Rather, he's a living, active, dynamic person who works in varying degrees and ways according to his purposes. So we should be willing to pray for revival, for true revival. And that that the warm winds of the Spirit would blow across our own land. I myself would covet your prayers weekly that the Spirit would work mightily through the preaching of this pulpit and both in in the preacher and the hearers. And praise God, what a joy it is for us to live in this age, in the age of the end-time Holy Spirit. We can make those prayers. Of course, all of this centers around a single person, the Christ, the actual Christ. And that's our fourth theme that runs through the scriptures and to this point converging here is the coming Messiah. As I brought up last week, uh, we should view Mary in a positive light, in an exemplary light. She displays remarkable faith despite being thrown into disorienting circumstances and, and at a very young age. She's the recipient of a marvelous calling, and yet we err if we allow Mary to drift toward the center of the story. Uh, The reason that she is esteemed is because of the person that is in her. No doubt, Mary would weep with grief if she heard that people were calling her a co-redemptrix with Christ, or if if she knew they were venerating her or praying to her. 
Elizabeth, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, is humbled and amazed to be in the presence of Mary. But she only calls one person in the room, Lord. Verse 42, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? It's presumably the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy still, the same month in which Gabriel visited Mary. She rose in haste to visit Elizabeth and this little person in Mary's womb, no more than a few weeks into his earliest stages of development, and yet he is Elizabeth's Lord. He's Elizabeth's Lord even as he was David's Lord. In Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And Elizabeth is humbled by the very presence. Again, as David was in the presence of the Lord, humbled. In 2 Samuel 6, 9, it says, after Uzzah is struck dead for touching the ark, and they received the ark back from the Philistines, it says that David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? It's very similar language, isn't it? How can it come to me? David was not in awe because of a golden box. But because it represented in some sense it contained the presence of the Lord, both in power and in judgment and favor and the blessings of the Lord, that is why he's in awe, is because of the, the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of the Lord. In the same way, Elizabeth is not impressed chiefly with the bearer of the Messiah, but with her presence as the bearer of Emmanuel. But both for her and for the people of God, Once again, though, the ark is gone through and the throne of David is gone in the 400 years of silence. The very presence of God was not manifestly with them. And yet now God is with us. Emmanuel. The witness of God has found fresh expression in the form of a wee child about the size of a grain of rice, according to Google, at a month old. A child covered in amniotic fluid is is Elizabeth's Lord. I mean, you you can't make this stuff up. No, no one would have expected the arrival of the Messiah in this way. And yet, Luke here, he's connecting the dots for us. It's all lining up. The child who had been foretold for long ages was in her very presence. And by the power of the Spirit, she was already bending the knee before him and calling him her Lord. And already in this state of humiliation where he's vulnerable, undeveloped, the weakest state a human being could be in, he is exalted by the confession of the mouth of Elizabeth, my Lord. And one day at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord and would that we would all do so with haste and with joy as Elizabeth did. 
The fifth uh, intersecting theme here this morning is faith. Faith. Initially, we might ask, why did Mary leave her home and travel to visit Elizabeth? After all, she'd already confessed faith in what Gabriel had told her. Let it to me be to me as you have said. Was it not enough for her that the, the angel had visited her? Was it not enough that he had spoken of the sign of Elizabeth, uh, that, that nothing would be impossible with God? But of course, it's not doubt that leads Mary to Elizabeth, but faith. She goes because she believes. We, we might ask ourselves a similar question. Why do we come and partake of the sign of the Lord's Supper every week? Is it not enough that we have the words of promise in the Bible? Is it not enough that we've heard the word of the cross through the scriptures and the preaching of the gospel? But no, it's not because we doubt that we come to the table. It's because we believe that we come to the table. Mary traveled that distance because God had given her a sign and it was hers to view and to enjoy for the strengthening and confirmation of her faith. It was precisely because she believed that she wanted to celebrate the sign of God's powerful fulfillment and his faithfulness. Calvin said, I think it probable that her object was partly to increase and strengthen her faith and partly to celebrate the grace of God, which both women had received. So indeed, her faith here is, is commended in verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Surely in, in glory in heaven, uh, the great hall of faith that's in Hebrews 11 will, will be updated to include new, new, new Testament members. And Mary will surely feature prominently as a great woman of faith. I've said it many times, I'll continue to say it, that I think at the most basic level, faith is very simply believing God. God speaks, faith believes. This is true of words of law that God speaks. Obedience submits to the word of God as good. This is obedience of faith. And it's the point here at which Adam and Eve fell into faithlessness. Rather than enjoy God as the standard and the keeper of good and evil, they thought they could achieve a higher degree of blessedness if they took that standard to themselves and instead became their own keepers of good and evil. They failed to believe God's word and instead believed their own. It's also true, of course, of words of promise. God loves to make promises that are far outside the realm of ordinary possibility uh, so that we're stripped of our own self-reliance. All of this is consistent with the the witness of an Old Testament theme that runs through this passage, that it's always been about the Word of God and faith. From Noah to Abraham to David to Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, the people of God are those who believe God. Last night I was quizzing my family 
around the dinner table for fun on some Bible trivia. I just found a trivia list online. One of the questions asked, how were people saved in the Old Testament? The answer, by making sacrifices. Ah. No, they were not saved by making sacrifices. They were saved by grace, through faith, and the promises of God that would ultimately culminate in the Messiah. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Luke would have us understand that like Mary, the truly blessed ones are and always have been the ones who believe God, those who have faith. Even as Paul points out in Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Now then, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The sixth and final theme that runs through the scriptures and in this text is joy. Joy. <clears throat> I had somebody ask me the other day, uh, at Christmas time, should we be joyful because Jesus came or sad because he came to die? Well, the clear testimony of scripture is we should be joyful. Visiting the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, the angel says to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Again, Elizabeth attributes this leaping, this, this miraculous event in her womb to the emotion of joy. John was joyful. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Joy is another of the great signs of the dawning of the, the new covenant era. Uh, Isaiah 52.8, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together, they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see, they return the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together in singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Of course, Isaiah 9, beginning verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken on the day, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So, John's reaction is right on the money here. 
He was among the first to express great joy at the arrival of the Messiah. Even as an infant, he leveled the ground for the Messiah and he pointed to Christ. So may we who now live in in the prophesied age of joy uh, share in John's delight. A, A supernatural joy, a joy that comes from the Holy Spirit, that delights in the presence of Emmanuel, God with us. For to us a son is born and to us a child is given. Amen.